Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. Okay, this week we are in week two of our three-part series talking to big-time killer drummers. And this week we are talking to Tris Imboden. I always say Imboden, but I think it's Imboden. Anyway, Tris for decades was the drummer in Chicago. And until about two years ago, he was with them for a long time. So we talk all about Chicago, but before that, he worked a long time with Kenny Loggins. And I love Kenny Loggins. So we go deep on some Kenny Loggins. Before that even, he was in a surf band called Honk. That's where he started. So we go all the way back to the beginning. And along the way, there's detours with people like Anita Baker, Al Jarreau, Richard Marks, Fee Waybill, tons of other people. Of course, we had to kick it off with Footloose. I mean, this is one of the biggest songs of all time. And our guest this week is the guy playing drums in this song. Can you believe it? He tells a super funny story about Footloose in here too. Anyway, I had been wanting to talk to Tris for years. I wanted to go deep on Chicago and Kenny and we made it happen. Tris is the sweetest man. I hope you guys really enjoy this. Uh, and listen up to the very end. I'll tell you who next week's guest is, okay? Tris called me from his home in LA. So I have been dying to have a really good Kenny Loggins conversation with somebody, and I'm so glad that we get to do this. And uh, I really love his work, and especially the period that you were a, a big part of. Let's start from the beginning. How You came on on the Night Watch album. How did you even, you know, cross paths with Kenny Loggins? Well, it's uh, John, and actually, uh, I first met Kenny years before I was playing with him, as mm -hmm. I, I was in a band called Honk mm -hmm. that uh, had met with some success in Southern California and Hawaii, mm -hmm. record there uh, in, uh, in Hawaii. Anyway, long story short, I could go into the whole history of Honk, but Honk was actually asked to, to open some shows for Loggins and Messina, as we had the same agent. And uh, I was already a huge fan of Loggins and Messina. I loved their work mm -hmm. and big fan. And, and to try to make this condensed, mm -hmm. <laughs> at least somewhat, I heard about, uh, I was already working with a, a British artist, Ian Matthews, mm -hmm. who was from Purport Convention and who had had some success, his solo recording career. And uh, I'd done an album and was getting, or, two albums with him actually and was getting ready to go on the road opening for Little Feet with Ian Matthews nice. and uh, I was looking forward to that but at the behest of my then girlfriend she had learned of these auditions mm. with, uh, for Kenny Loggins that uh, the tour uh, promoting his first solo album Celebrate Me Home mm -hmm. so to tell you the truth, I really thought I had a deer fart in a windstorm's chance of, of getting the gig. Uh, and I was a bit ambivalent because it was only two weeks before I was, I was due to go out with Ian Matthews, and I'm not mm -hmm. one to be disloyal, you know, or mm -hmm. not honor my commitment. So, mm -hmm. But anyway, I went to the audition, and uh, I knew there was over 100 and some odd drummers that were auditioning. And most of them were my heroes already, you yeah, know. Yeah. So I really didn't think that much would come come of it. And anyway, they kept calling me back to to have another look. And finally, I received 
after three callbacks, two or three callbacks, I received a call from Kenny himself, and he said, how would you like to join a rock and roll band? And nice. I said, let me think about it, yes. Uh-huh. Uh, so much like I did when Chicago asked me right. to join. So anyway, that was 1977, and Kenny had got the much-sought-after coveted a slot to open for Fleetwood Mac mm-hmm. on the on his t- Celebrate Me Home tour mm-hmm. uh, as part of that tour. Uh, everybody, of course, wanted to open for Fleetwood Mac because that was a year Rumors mm-hmm. was, had been released, and it was, it was the biggest mm-hmm. album of all time, right? Yeah. And yeah. so... So anyway, yeah, we we toured, and the Kenny Loggins band was solidified at that point, and Kenny had eyes on uh, doing the next album with the band that he had put together. Uh, he had George Hawkins on bass already, uh, who had done the, the Celebrate Me Home album mm-hmm. with him, and also John Clark and Vince Denham, the two incredibly talented horn players as well, uh, that had done, recorded the Celebrate Me Home album. Okay. Uh, but the newer members were Mike Hamilton on uh, guitar, whom I'd been working with for years in Orange County, mm-hmm. and uh, Brian Mann on keyboards, brilliant keyboard player too. Mike Hamilton, I can't say enough about. He's just amazing. Anyway, we uh, we comprised the rhythm section, yeah, yeah. <laughs> pretty much. Yeah, oh, and then, yeah, there was a percussionist for that tour, first tour, as well. Ron Green, okay. a real, real sounded percussionist and singer. And okay. so, anyway, then we went on and recorded, went to New York in 1978 and recorded Nightwatch and uh, and had uh, Kenny's first hit, uh, solo hit, came off that record. Uh, it's a duet with Stevie Nicks called That's Whenever right. I Call Your Friend. Whenever I call you friend, I begin to think I understand anything. And I always been ever and ever. I see myself within your eyes, and that's all I need to show the world. Everything I do always takes me So good. Yeah. Um, I was curious. I, you know, Nightwatch, Celebrate Me Home is just such a beautiful record, singer songwriter record of that era. And Nightwatch feels a little more, it's almost, prog is the wrong word, but it, it uh, feels very adventurous. Mm. You know, even the song Nightwatch yeah. goes on almost eight minutes. Yeah. 
Uh, it's just so different. Yeah. Do you, when, are you just a hired hand, or are you involved in the creative processes at all? Is he coming to you and saying, "This is what I'm thinking for my next album, and I'm going to go a little different this time"? Does he say that to you? Yes, as a matter of fact. But the whole thing is, is that uh, the reason I believe he chose me was that I could cool his ideas uh. and kind of understand what it was that he had envisioned. Mm -hmm. And then my interpretation of, of his vision, he liked. Yeah. And, uh, and although Kenny is so meticulous about every instrument and every mm -hmm. part, it's almost as if he wishes he played all the instruments, you know? Mm -hmm. I can um, see that. So he kind of surrounds, surrounds himself with, with people that are able to understand what he's shooting for mm. and hopefully take, take his idea and then either contribute something he likes better or be able to at least play what his idea was. Yeah. So okay. we were all very, very involved in the creative process and we would rehearse for weeks on end before mm. recording. Unlike many uh, approaches that I have done in other band situations as well as with other artists mm -hmm. when I get called by a producer to come in and just kind of went my my voice you know yeah so yeah. Uh, okay yeah okay yeah it's a great album but I uh, I I think it just keeps getting kind of better from there I mean um, you know keep the fire yeah. is a great album with it's got the funniest album cover ever but the songs on it are kind yeah. of funky I really love mr. Knight that's a really excellent kind of oh, funky yeah. song, you know?
This Is It is on there. We've, I mean, I know oh, that this is around the time that he and Michael McDonald's collaboration is really taking flight. Is Michael around? Right. Are you in the, is he in the room with you guys at all, or are they off writing somewhere else? Well, actually, that was the last scene that we cut for, for that oh. album. Okay. And, uh, and I remember Kenny showing up with Michael, because Michael played on the basic track as well, and said, boy, do we ever have a good one. <laughs> <laughs> and then it was one of those things, it was like a medium-fast, chest-high, right uh -huh. across the, the plate, meatball man we love just it. laid into that love thing. it the song itself is so good on every yeah. level i mean like as a composition you know both yeah. lyrically but musically as well and we had so much fun cutting that thing and uh man so yeah i'm i am probably of of all my work with kenny i'm i'm most proud of that particular album as an as a whole really you know? i mean there's the tracks album. on wow yeah yeah wow. yeah even though i mean i love you know there's there's, there's many songs that on mm -hmm. other records that i've done with him that i'm equally as proud of i mean uh, heart mm -hmm. to heart comes to mind i from, love that song so from, much uh, high adventure Another yeah. McDonald uh, collaboration. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that so was, good. Uh, uh, I, that might have been the, oh, I'm not sure the order of things. The first song they ever wrote together, dig this, John, uh -huh. was What a Fool Believes.
I know. Isn't that wild? <laughs> and the second song was This Is It. Yes. And both those songs won Grammy. in my life I've been wondering why Still somehow I believe we'd always survive Now I'm not so sure you're waiting to hear one good reason to try But one more can I say left to bit for for a different category yeah yeah uh, the doobies won for record of the year and this is yet won a grammy for for best male vocal of crazy. the year it but but i mean not a bad batting average no okay we got it you got to tell me anything you remember about the the recording of it's all right um, you know, obviously that's a standard. Yeah, right. like it's yeah it, or I, yes, I'm sorry. I'm all right. I said it's all right. standard from Caddyshack and it's one of his biggest hits it's kind of out of the nowhere you know what a random hit thing yeah. to have a hit with tell me about it uh, well actually uh I think Kenny was you know that was like not long after we'd been on tour uh that that first tour in 70 it was after Night Watch but Kenny was still very influenced I think by 
by Fleetwood Mac, mm-hmm. and and I know it's it may be a stretch, but if you listen to it again, you may may hear that that mm. uh, you know that whole acoustic guitar thing, yeah, uh, strumming like that, the bass line that George came up with and that I played uh, on the bass drum, and the uh, the drumming was very uh, mid Fleetwood influenced yes. as well. And I think he was kind of shooting for for some something that felt kind of as if it were well Fleetwood Mackian. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if I can right, use that, coin right. the, the term, right. you know. And yeah. uh, I think that was initially the inspiration, and he knew it was going to be for that that movie, and he yeah. had seen footage before it was edited, and he said, "Man, the." some of the stuff that hit the editing floor was even funnier, <laughs> particularly the danger field stuff. I believe than, than what was in the movie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So what's it like when that song takes off? I mean, you, you know, Kenny's had a great career, but at that time, that one begins to sort of rise to the top. Are you, is that the, the song you're closing out concerts with? Is that the song you're getting the most requests for? Oh, wow. Well, we just sort of included it. Really? Uh, okay. Uh, I don't know that... Uh, yeah, I think we did, and and we may have used it in, um, on, in the encore during that year that it was a big hit. Yeah. In fact, I've got a funny story about that, too. Because Kenny used to cut the song off when he would do the classic big at the end, you know, uh-huh. the uh-huh. that's on the drums, and then, uh-huh. you know, they're hitting the, the big chord, the big power chord and everything. And then Kenny would leap up in the air and come down, and we would stop. That's what was supposed to happen and nice. had happened, like, traditionally all year long. Well, it's been a long-standing tradition for the road crew to mess with the band on the last show uh-huh. of, a, of a tour. <laughs> right. Uh-huh. <laughs> and man, I've had everything from peanut shells dropped from a lighting truss, like a whole bucket of them, and with mixed with a delicate blend of rice and peanut shells uh-huh. dropped on me from <laughs> buckets of them all at once to to, to people have glued, you know, like wah-wah pedals to uh-huh. the down position, and you know, I mean, just stuff like that, you know, and yeah. eyes in the face, right. you know, and that sort of thing. So anyway. Wow. Uh, okay. But this particular year, uh, we had gotten together with Kenny's Kenny's tech, guitar tech, because it's uh, just to, to beef up the, the the acoustic guitar sound. Uh, he, Mark Wittenberg, was his guitar tech's name, <laughs> and uh, and he he was playing acoustic guitar on that song on the side of the stage but nobody would see him just to mm-hmm. sort of double Kenny on the acoustic guitar mm-hmm. uh, so anyway we had gotten together and said okay when Kenny does that that big pump we're not going to cut off mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. <laughs> and then Mark's going to come out who is like this sort of real slight not real tall and very thin man right uh-huh. come out and, and just jump kind of sideways and not even make a big deal out of the jump and that'll be our cue <laughs> so, so anyway, yeah, uh, you know, it, was, it, was, it was planned, and we do the big ending, and I'm I'm doing going crazy, and uh, and Kenny 
jumps and comes down, and, and nobody comes out, but he turns around and gives me this look like, Oh, boy, are you going to get it? And <laughs> Mark Wittenberg came out from the side of the stage and just jumped laterally, maybe uh-huh. two feet. No <laughs> way. About two inches off the ground. <laughs> we cut off then. And even Kenny had to crack up. <laughs> That's, great. Great That's great. That's great. That's um, great. Okay, one thing I've been always been curious about with Kenny is he seems to be an artist who really wears his heart on his sleeve um, when it comes uh-huh. to, you know, the state of his marriage or his relationships. If he's in love, his songs are very happy. If he's getting divorced, they're very sad. You can kind of read yeah. between the lines on a lot of his stuff. And I wondered, you know, because High Adventure... I believe comes out after a divorce and uh i'm curious if is he and i'm not asking you to speak ill will of kenny loggins by any means but is he can he be a an emotionally heavy person to be around at times like that is he is he kind of all over the place emotionally or is a little more steady than that well to be fair you know kenny is a very sensitive person but we we certainly are aware of uh-huh. <laughs> what emotional state he would be in yeah. <laughs> moment to moment. Yeah, uh, and and uh, you know without you know I'm not trying to to no, of course not. speak ill or anything of, of him. I mean I owe, I feel like I owe him a debt of such a huge debt of gratitude for uh-huh. having chosen me to be his drummer all those all those years and. Yeah. And to a, to be honored to play on those records, but but yes, he is not the easiest of artists to to work with. Yeah. He, in fact, he, of of all, everyone I've worked with, he may be the most, if not one of the most, certainly most meticulous, most demanding, mm. Mm. and 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 hardest to please, and really, and and, and at times hard to be around. You know? huh. But that's, you know, I mean, like I say, he's an artist. He's the sure. real deal. That's true for a lot and, of them. Yeah, and, uh, yeah man. Yeah. And, and I know we all have our own moments, mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. I'm sure I'm no walk in the park sometimes. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. But, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but uh, I'm just trying to be fair about, sure, you know, uh, but uh, and answer honestly your question. Yeah. But he does write from his heart. Yeah. And, 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 and those... His songs usually are very autobiographical. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, yeah, I, I don't yeah. know if that if that's no, what that you're helps. asking as well. That, I mean, you're confirming basically what I wondered about. Uh, not that he's you know difficult. I I love the guy. I just um, yeah, he does seem like an emotional mm-hmm. guy, and um, that is mm-hmm. a very sensitive guy. You were right. That's the right wording. Um, now, okay, yeah. we got to talk about Footloose. I mean, that's the. That's, oh, okay. the, that's the big one, and it kicks off with your drums, I believe. That's you playing that. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Okay. That's right. That's so right. tell me anything yeah. you remember about Footloose, the recording of Footloose. Oh, God. Well, I've already told this story. In fact, I just, <laughs> well, I'll tell it again. I'm sure you do. I'm uh, sorry. But we. I don't know it, so I got to ask, a, you know? That's fine. I don't mind telling it. It's kind of funny. We, uh, the band at that time, I uh, was comprised of Nathan East, the famous and mm-hmm. and, and renowned first call bass player uh, in the world, 
was in the band on on bass and on guitar was Buzzy Feeton, uh, the the celebrated guitarist from dates all the way back to the Paul Butterfield blues mm. band when he was mm. sixteen. Was played with everybody from Stevie Wonder to on. I mean, that you you can name. Leo Larson on keyboards, who's like another one who yeah. I can't begin to. I mean, his pedigree is is as long as as uh, as you can imagine. Mm-hmm. And and then Steve Wood, my buddy, who was in Hawk, actually oh. we were in Hawk together. Yeah, okay. and uh, and so anyway, <laughs> much like Kenny being the the meticulous rehearsal not that he is sound checks uh, traditionally with Kenny are are like rehearsals they're okay. hours long you know mm-hmm. and and you're rehearsing you're not uh, sound checking really yeah you're, you're getting sounds as well but they're rehearsals and that's a daily thing on the road mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so anyway <laughs> he knew he had the, the song written he knew it was going to be in the movie Footloose. He had no idea, of course, nobody did, mm-hmm. that the movie was going to turn out to be what it was, mm-hmm. uh, or that the song would, would do what it did. But yeah. uh, we rehearsed the crap out of that song. Uh-huh. <laughs> and we were so over-rehearsed on, with that tune. We'd rehearsed, we'd been on the road playing it every day at Soundcheck for months. And so... When we got back in town and it was time to record, we went to the record plant in L.A., and we cut that track, John, in two takes. And what? the first one was for just two takes. One, the first one was for sound, right? Uh-huh. uh-huh. <laughs> for, for the engineer. And the second one was so dead on. I mean, the first one was so dead on because we knew that song inside and out. Yeah. And, and uh, so we just slam dunked it i mean we were just nailed and then i went back because simmons drums were popular then too and and that drum breakdown in the middle you know Mm -hmm. i doubled my acoustic drums with simmons uh drums the electronic drums too so so but that's that's was a second take and and uh here's the here's the kicker Walking out of the studio, I was, you know, I had my arm around Nathan, and we were talking, and we both laughingly said, that's the last time we'll ever have to hear that piece of crap. You know? <laughs> no way. <laughs> we hated the song because we were just tired of it, you know. Yeah, yeah. And, and so, so what happens? It not only blows up, it blows up all over the world yes. at, at roughly the same time. was number one all over the world. was not only nominated for a Grammy, it was nominated for an Academy Award. Yep, yep. <laughs> and, oh, man. And the album I, 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 I have in my home right now, I've got two uh, uh, Platinum Award uh, uh-huh. awards uh, plaques with... One has five platinum records on it. That was like from in the 80s. Which and, one? And uh, I just got one that has nine platinum Oh, my <laughs> gosh. Those are both it. for the Footloose yeah. soundtrack? For Footloose, yeah. Oh, right. my gosh. Yeah. No way. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, man. Well, yeah, I'm so one of those people. I, to... I bought it, too, when I was 11 years old. I love that movie. Uh, <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah, oh, yeah sure. I love the movie too, and I have to admit, 
when I could not change the channel on the radio and not hear Footloose being played, uh-huh. I liked the song a whole lot. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. I made peace with it. You know? That is classic. So, yeah. I, um, I grew up in Utah, and I know where a lot of those things have been filmed and everything. And so uh, anyway, uh-huh. that, that movie's a, a big part of my life, and so is the soundtrack. One thing I wanted, I was curious about, the other song on the album, which, frankly, I kind of like better, is I'm Free. But I wondered if you even play on that. Is that a drum machine, or are you... Oh, wondering? yeah. That's me. I play on it. Yeah, okay. uh, Foster produced that, I think. Yeah. yeah, David Foster. And at that point, you know, I, that was right about the time, too. Foster did not produce Footloose. That was Lee right. DiCarlo, and, and, uh, but David Foster was involved in, in uh, I'm Free. Okay. And, uh, yeah. Okay. So, okay. yeah, that's me. That's me. Yeah. Great that, song. You know, what may confuse you is all the, yeah, it's, it is a great song. I like that, uh-huh. too. Um, what may confuse you and make you think that it's a machine is, is I was using Simmons as toms. I didn't uh, you know, set up acoustic toms. Okay. And then, of course, the snare drums were processed, the okay. AMS and all. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, Vox Humana, believe it or not, is one of my favorite albums of all time. And I'll tell you why. Oh, Christ- okay. I know. Christmas of 1985, I'm 12 years old, and my parents are Santa gives me my very first ghetto blaster, my first boombox, and uh, my either Santa or my mom uh, picked for whatever reason Vox Humana to give to me at Christmas as my first cassette to play in my first ghetto blaster. So (laughs) I, uh, I didn't ask for that album. I don't know why that's the one she picked. She knew I liked Kenny, so. But anyway, I Uh used to listen, I have heard that album 
hundreds of times in my life. I love it uh -huh. so much. And right. I, when I was a little kid, I used to just pour over the liner notes because everybody and their mama plays on that album. And um, yeah. it's, it's so different. He, it's him starting to become more R&B. He is a long ways from the celebrity or from the celebrate me home kind of guy. And yeah. uh, in getting ready yeah. to talk to you, I was going through exactly where you were on this album. You're only on a couple of songs, not a couple, maybe four, well, you know? Yeah, the, the thing about that, that tune, uh, I mean, uh, that album is that he was using Machine on yeah. uh, more than a few tunes. Mm -hmm. So uh, my one claim to fame, and I'll never let him forget about it, is that I pretty much played on every hit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the hit off that album was forever. And, and uh, that big ballad. Yes, and the drums are huge the in there, and that's you. Right? Yep, nice. that's me. Yep, yep. That's David Foster. Uh, that's a David Foster production. And his engineer, Roberto Gatica, I cannot say enough about. Ooh. Just that, that was the Simmons uh, drums again. Okay. The electronic uh, drums uh, yeah. that were just pads, right? They were triggered. Yeah those sounds and the drum sound is massive on that yes and uh yeah so okay. anyway yeah so that's that was the hit off that album actually the backstory on that was kenny actually when footloose came out the record company uh his agents everybody was screaming you got a tour mm. you, you've got a tour man mm. we'll sell out stadiums and yeah. and he was like eh, i'm not really feeling it right now which, oh <laughs> which I've always what? admired him for that. He's always taken his success at his own pace, you know, uh -huh, uh -huh. and he's not so obsessed by that. You know, actually, he's a true artist. He really yeah. is. But anyway, as a result of that, that was still in the days of, of when record companies would 
would say, okay, we got to have another foot loose, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, so Kenny was was hoping to write something sort of footloose like, I guess, mm-hmm. with with that song, Box Humana. That that was yeah how that tune okay. came to be interesting right? yeah okay. okay and that's a machine on that that's a yeah. drum machine on that I didn't play on that yeah, yeah. I um I'm curious if how you're feeling and maybe I'm pro- maybe I'm projecting but I'm imagining the possibility of someone like you Tris who has been a you know, a supporter and a right hand man for Kenny for years now during this whole rise in popularity. That suddenly, uh-huh. when he's got all the wind in his back and all this power to make the album he wants, and he makes Vox Humana, and you're not on every song, and he's collaborating with J.R. Robinson, and I mean, the, Nathan, and the greatest musicians of the era are all coming in as guests on this album. Are you feeling squeezed out at all, or are you just as much a part of the band as you always were? You're just not playing on every tune. Well, you know, um, I, 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 yeah, I think maybe I did feel that a little bit, but it didn't didn't bother me that much because okay. at that point too, I was, you know, I was working so much with other artists, mm. uh, and I, as I say, I came to a debt of gratitude. The reason I was sort of in demand was because of those records I'd done yeah. with Kenny, okay. that it had gotten all the attention. And, uh, you know, gee, I mean, I got, <laughs> because of those records, I, I know that that's why Al Jarreau was aware of me, mm-hmm. why Shaka Khan was aware of me, why Howard Hewitt was aware of me, why I ended up working with Anita Baker, why yes. I, I uh, you know, I mean, the list goes on. So yeah. I, I am, I, uh, so yes and no. So uh, it was okay. It was sort of the, yeah, you know, there are so many uh, drummers that actually weren't working at all because of the mm-hmm. drum machine, yeah. the advent of the drum machine, and then the, the preponderance of that um, mm-hmm. drum machine and pop music, you know? I mean, it was yeah. like, it was just, a, you know, so uh, 
I was I was happy to be be, uh, be playing on the record. Okay. Frankly. Good. Okay. You know, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. Good. Okay. Yeah. That I I I love that album so much. It's it's so uh-huh. deep in my yeah. deep in my bones. Isn't that funny? Um, okay. Last yeah. to wrap That's up the cool. Kenny Loggins story. Uh, Leap of Faith. I don't believe you play on Back to Avalon, but Leap of Faith is such a huge change of direction. And the song in particular, the song Leap of Faith, the whole like, it's almost eight minutes long and half of it is this tribal drumming. Is that you playing that? No, no, no. (laughs) I played at that point when that album came out, I'd already, I was a member of Chicago. Okay. And, And Kenny though, um, had this one particular tune called Convincing of the Heart. Where are the dreams that we once had? This is the time to bring them back. What were the promises? Caught on the tips of our tongues. We forget or forgive There's a whole lot of life Waiting to live When one day we're brave enough To talk with conviction Tried to cut and recut and recut and recut, in a, with a variety of different rhythm sections. And he he was already in love with this the original demo that he'd cut in Hawaii, mm. which was piano and and guitar. Steve Wood again from Honk playing piano okay. on that 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 tune. And he was so in love with the feel of that of that original demo that he wrote me a letter and and sent a cassette in it. It was that long ago. We're <laughs> still wow. cassettes. And said, Tris, you know, he explained that he tried to cut it in a variety of different uh, ways and it just was un- couldn't quite get the same vibe. And he, he said, do you think you could overdub to this? Mm. Because there was no click track. That's the problem. The, the track okay. actually <laughs> kind of varies in tempo. Mm-hmm. And uh, I listened to the cassette, and I said, I, I, you know, I called him and said, yeah, man, I can mm-hmm. do that. I just mm-hmm. kind of made a, a mental note, of course, where it laid back and where it kind of seemed to push and that. Mm-hmm. So so I I went in and, and cut it. Actually, it was in one take, too. Oh, I, wow. I, I'd, really, I'd really done my homework. Yeah. And uh, so he was real happy with the, uh, with Good. the result. And... And again, that was the hit on yes. the record. Yep. That, 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 act, that song actually ended up being being deemed the unofficial 
uh, theme song of the environmental movement by Al Gore. <laughs> yeah, really? Al did that? And, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, anyway, so, so yeah, I'm, I, I really love that record. But Good. Kenny at that point uh, uh, was way into like big percussion sections mm. in that. Mm -hmm. And so, so in answer to you, that sort of leap of faith in that uh, does go through the, all that uh, that whole real percussive yeah. um, part, and as does condition of the heart. Yeah. Um, he after I put the drums on it, he had brought in uh, oh geez some great percussionists Kevin Ricard whom I'd introduced to Kenny and 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 then uh, Bill Summers from Herbie Hancock and, mm. and all kinds of, of, of really great percussionists playing on cool. that. Okay. Uh, on the on the yeah. Okay. It sounds like your partnership with Kenny had already come to an end. And, and I just remember at the time when this album came out, you know, he'd grown his hair long. I think he went through a second divorce. Not ex I don't remember for mm -hmm. sure. But I, um, what was, you know, what led to you leaving Kenny for Chicago, assuming that it was that clean of a decision? Were you kind of, did Kenny say, you know, I don't know if I need you anymore? Was he starting to slow down? Was Chicago no. a better offer? What happened in there? Well, <laughs> right about uh, 1986, which is why I'm not on Back to Avalon mm -hmm. at all. Okay. Because I was traveling so much with Al Jarreau. Oh. And, uh, yeah, I was so honored to be asked to be the drummer with Al Jarreau. Yeah. That was like, you know, for a drummer to play with him. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, everybody from Steve Gadd to Alex Acuna to, I mean, the, some of the greatest drummers of our time yeah. have been his drummer uh, and at one time or another. And so to uh, have, have had the extreme, like, like, like honor of yeah. being asked to be his drummer was just, you know, I couldn't say no. So, as, as a matter of fact, when I chose to do that in 86, Kenny and I had a conversation and he was actually, you know, he, he pleaded with me to reconsider and, uh, you know, told me he needed me. And I, but I, I was like, you know, in all honesty, John, I was so ready for a change. And it was the perfect, the perfect thing for me, uh, too, because as, as on hand, as Kenny is when it comes to coming up with drum parts and that. Now mm -hmm. Jerome, on the other hand, was just, he comes from a jazz uh, yeah. place, you know? Yeah. And he he wants it fresh and new every night, mm -hmm. including any improvisation or new idea you come up with on stage. Yeah. He's like, bring it, you know? So yeah. so I needed that as a foil to, to all the years of, sort of, uh, not to take anything away at all. From no, I get it. I get it. Guys. I got to play with Kenny, but, so anyway, so that's why I chose to go with Al. Okay. And so I was with Al for, for the next couple of years, three years or so, and in around 88, uh, I actually divided my time. I came back to play with Kenny, but I divided the year, 88 into 89, with Al Jarreau, so I was okay. on the road almost the whole time. Wow! Uh, and okay. then, then that led to to uh, all kinds of things, you know. Yeah. I mean, playing with Jerome too, 
And then in 1990 was was uh, uh, the first. It was the first year that I was looking at a summer without a tour Ooh. and kind of going, "Geez, this is weird." Yeah, because you know, everybody saw me right in the summer. Right. And uh, I got a call from Bill Jordan, uh who said, uh, "Gee, what are you doing this summer?" And I said, "It's funny you should mention it. You know, uh, <laughs> I'm not going out with Kenny. I'm not going out with with Al. They're not." Touring, so yeah. he he said, well, "How'd you like to join the band?" And, yeah. no and I said, "What?" Are you <laughs> me? So yeah. So for the next twenty-eight years, yeah, wow, <laughs> I was a I was a drummer of Chicago. You know, <laughs> that's and, wild. Uh, yeah, almost Just like thirty that. years, man. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, I got to ask, why did you leave? That came as kind of a surprise to me because. It, it, now the reason, and if this is too touchy, you tell me. We can move past it, or I'll I'll tread lightly. But what I read was that you had been recently remarried and wanted to kind of spend time with your new wife, and that's. But that sounds like what a lot of people say when there's re- another reason and they don't want to talk about it. And I wondered if oh, I don't know what's really going on there. There was uh, something that happened, but okay. I'm. Uh, but it was all my choice. Okay, you know. Okay. It was all my choice. It was. It had nothing to do with, with uh, them, to wanting me to leave or okay. or anything like that. It was just there was a there was an incident that I I don't want to talk about. You don't have to. But um, yeah. But uh, truth be told, I had really really uh, been been pondering that move for a long time. Mm, mm. I mean, I, you know, I, when you think of it, from 1977 to 2018, my last show in Chicago was March of 2018. So that's a, that's a real yeah, long it time. Is. It is. <laughs> it is. Like 41 years or something, yeah. I think, of, of uh, you know. So um, I, I really, at that point to Chicago, up until, of course, uh, the virus here, yeah. uh, was still on the road I, I, and in the, going into their 53rd year, 52nd Goodness. year anyway. And the band, uh, when I first joined in 1990, was touring maybe six months out of every year. Mm. Well, that that became, uh, as the, with the demise of the record industry, yeah. as a source of income, uh, you, had to, you had to play live. So yeah. that kind of became more like like eight to ten months out of every year i believe it and uh you know i miss so many life events important life events not the ways to which you know deaths and and births and you know in my family that i that was really kind of getting getting old and then when i met my my now wife mary and i this is my fourth wife okay uh, and in no (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and in no small way, the demise of the other three were can be pretty pretty much correlated to being sure. away from home all, all yeah. the time, you know. Yeah. So I uh, I didn't want this. Uh, this is the one for me, yeah. man. Good. Good. And uh, so yeah, so I'm, we're really happy. Good. We're really happy. So are you and essentially really then happy. retired right now, or are you going to pick up another gig? I mean, you're. You, you got to be in your seventies or something. Do you need another gig? <laughs> I'm not in my seventies. Okay. And gratefully, no, I don't need another gig. Okay. But I will continue to to play, and 
if the right situation comes along, yeah, okay. I, I, I just may, may do it. But, I mean, with regards to going on the road, but the thing, thing I'm really looking forward to is actually putting something of my own together. Good. And, uh, yeah, in fact, to that end, it's already started, but I can't really talk about okay. it. Okay, that's it's, okay. But it's, still, good to know. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Killer. And uh, it's going to be real fun, man. Good. And it's going to be a lot of really, I mean, not a lot, but a, but a band of really ace players, mm -hmm. too. Good. So I'm, I'm, I'm real excited about it. Fun. That sounds great. Okay. Um, now, one thing yeah. we, we touch on, and we just sort of got into this a little bit, but on the podcast, we try to touch very respectfully and sensitively on the business side of things. And I'm curious, uh -huh. I mean, you know, being with one of the biggest bands in history for that long, I'm sure you lived a great life and paid all your bills and had plenty left over for vacations. But when nowadays, what is the, when you get your mailbox money, what's the biggest uh -huh. earner? What's the top line item that pays the pays you the most mailbox money at this time? Well, um, it would have to be all those many years of uh, of of recording with so many artists. It okay. wasn't always this way that uh, uh, that you received royalties after the fact, or uh, but but no, gratefully because of the musicians' union and after mm -hmm. SAG and all of that. And uh, the advent of some of these new funds, mm -hmm. um, I do get get uh, sharing in a lot of the because on all those hit records, you know, when you're a, a session musician, you you are an independent contractor, a hired gun, and yeah. if you didn't co-write the song, you know, you're not paid royalties normally. So okay. it's nice that that I'm able to participate now. You know? Okay. Yeah, I wondered, because yeah. I knew you didn't write, you know, It's All Right or Footloose or the Chicago songs or whatever, but I wondered if you, some mechanical royalty, because they were, some of them were so huge, still comes in and, I mean, I guess you're, you're gonna, you're good. Financially, you're good. I'm not, I don't want to get, we don't have to yeah, get into I, details, but financially, you're good. Okay. Yeah, I am. Okay. Mercifully. And okay. that's something that I never actually first saw myself as being because it's sort of a tenuous mm -hmm. existence being an artist of any kind much less a, <laughs> yeah you yeah. know a, a musician you know yeah, you, yeah. so okay. i've good. been very blessed but yeah good okay yeah all right well then uh okay one thing i've been dying to tell you so my daughter just turned 13 years old and uh, her name is Georgia, uh -huh. and she and I recently, we did a little uh, podcast uh, episode where we counted down our five favorite songs that the other person had introduced us to. So she, I played the five songs that she showed me, and she played the top five songs that I showed her. And I thought you should know oh, yeah. that her number one song of her life, and keep in mind, I'm a big music junkie, so I've just been force-feeding music on my kids their entire lives. Her number one song oh, of her entire life is Stone of Sisyphus.
Yes. Oh my God. Yes. Wow, man. Wow. Yes, I know. Wow, that is so great to hear. Oh yes. man. We have. Oh, I love that tune too. Yeah. I do. Too. Oh man. I love that album. Man. It never leaves our car. We listen to it a lot. Um, I think oh, it's such an man. oddity in the Chicago canon. I want to hear all about it. But I just, the other day we were driving around after you and I connected up. And I said, Georgia, I just want you to know the guy playing drums oh. in this song right here is the same guy who played oh. drums on Footloose. And she, her mind is blown because she knows both songs <laughs> by heart. And so, and I said, I'm oh. about to talk to this guy. So anyway. I just wanted you to know well, that you've got a giant fan in my daughter who just barely turned 13. So, anyway. Oh, man, that, you made my whole year. That's Good. That is so nice to hear. That is just beautiful. Will you please, is it Georgia? Georgia, yeah. Uh, Georgia, please, please give her my best. And, I will. And tell her thank you and, and tell her... Uh, that I also think that she has very good taste. Oh, good. <laughs> yes. I will let her know. Um, anyway, yes, I had to let you know. Now, that album to me is just, it's so weird. And I, um, you know, it's such a departure. I've had Peter Wolf, the producer on here. We talked about it. Um, I read the, there's oh, that good. book, uh, The Greatest Music Never Sold or something. And it's a chapter in there about why it got held back and never released. Right. Tell me what was the thinking going into that project? Because it's so different. Well, man, it was so, so different. Chicago had, had I think, kind of been forced into this sort of like, uh, you know how the industry always wanted to pigeonhole, mm -hmm. you know, a band uh, in, in, in a genre or whatever. And yeah. I think that Chicago... Uh, unfortunately had been kind of deemed in the business's mind as a very successful ballad band, yes. power ballad band, yeah. you know, and especially after all the, that slew of hits with uh, Peter Cetera, mm -hmm. you know, uh, inspiration and the mm -hmm. hard habit to break with Bill and him and, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, you know, those, those sort of songs. <laughs> but the band rocks yeah. and, and and live would just rock your your socks off but mm -hmm. and i i think that it was it was frustrating uh mm -hmm. for the band to to kind of be pigeonholed like that so going into the record peter wolf who is such an incredible producer mm -hmm. and an incredible musician himself really really sympathized with that and and wanted nothing to do with with uh that that sort of formulae kind of approach and so he was pushing everybody to to really come up with with new ideas and and compositionally and lyrically and mm -hmm. and the uh, horns uh, to uh, horn arrangements and pushing me to which was so great because mm -hmm. i love doing that you know yeah. kind of trying to press the envelope a little in pop music instead right. of playing the same old you know two and four all the time and chopping yeah. wood yeah. i really like to stretch than when I can on a record, you know, yeah. and so, so that was that was the whole thing. And I remember Walter Zader and Jimmy at, uh, and we were talking, and they were saying, you know, this is the record that had to be made. We had yeah. to do this, and yeah. you know, the whole band was 
so behind it. Oh, my God, we were so proud of it. And it was such a departure uh-huh. from the previous records. Anyway, it was such a giant disappointment that the whole political snafu yeah. happened between Warner Brothers and and the band, you know, where, yeah. where I don't know what Peter told you, and, and it's probably... I shouldn't be telling stories out of school, but it really had nothing to do with the music, why right. it didn't come out. That's what he said. Yeah, yeah. I think it, it was the last yeah. album of your contract, and I think and you were planning on going somewhere else. And so the label was like, why would we promote this band's last album with us if they're just going to leave? I think it's something like that, if I remember right. Yeah, yeah, it's, well, yeah, that's it, it, effectively or okay. what it, what it okay. ended up being. Okay. Uh, they they came back and said, "No, we don't hear a hit." Yeah. <laughs> it's like, well. and why you need to go back and do some some ballads like no. like uh, you know like uh, heart, like um, hard heart to say, I'm sorry. Yes. Whatever you know. Yes. And, we, and that was exactly what they didn't want to do. So they said, uh, we, "We we don't like it, and we're not going to release it." And okay, goodbye. <laughs> And that wow. was, that's what happened. That so, sucks. I love that album so much. It's so daring and ballsy, and you guys sound fantastic. And you're right. I mean, it kind of, it's a nice palate cleanser from the from the Foster years that provided oh, all those successful yeah. ballads. And here it's a reminder of just how much you guys can rock when you're allowed to. And that so that album is so <laughs> great. Another fantastic song you guys did was Now. That sounds, uh, I know you went touring with, you toured with Earth, Wind & Fire, who are one of my favorite bands ever. That song sounds just like an Earth, Wind & Fire song that they didn't record, you know? Yeah, right, right. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Jason is really to be commended for writing that. I, I'm trying to remember uh, whether it was um, uh, Barnhill, Greg Barnhill, that he wrote that with. Okay. Or, uh, oh, but, but yeah, man, um, and man, it it was intended to to sound mm-hmm. <laughs> like that. I mean, you know, we all love R and B so much, mm-hmm. and we all love Earth, Wind, and Fire. God, yeah, that goes without saying. Who yeah. doesn't love Earth, Wind, and Fire? 
And man, those years, in fact, I just posted something today, man, from our first year with them. It was just uh, at the end of rehearsals before we went out on the road together in 2004. Man, every tour that we did with them was just absolutely nothing short of magical. I believe it. It, it was, you know, we were just so, so, so all of us, both bands, just in yeah. awe of the synergy that happened, you know, yeah. when, when we would get together. Yeah. Great stuff. Okay, but I love that song now too. (laughs) Yeah, and you're great. I I mean, you're so good on all of these. Um, I uh, okay. Let me let me ask you another potentially hard question. Uh, What's what's the deal with Peter? What is what can you say, if anything, is at the heart of the dysfunction between Peter and the rest of the guys? Oh, gee, Uh, you know, it's it's. I don't know that it's right for me to speak. Okay. I, okay. I, uh, um, you know, I have worked with Peter. I, I know, and I wondered I, why, you know, that you've worked with him, you played on that one album of his in the 80s, and yet, you know, I wondered if yeah. you were, would be a bridge between the two, but it's, but you're not, and no one is. I don't know how to, like, fix this relationship. Yeah, I wish that, I, I really do wish that, that uh, it hadn't come to what it, it, it came to, and that yeah. it's become the thing that it became you know there's just a lot of resentment between um you know some members of the band and and peter and and i guess vice versa i have not mm. spoken to peter since i was asked to join the band mm. and and uh i'd love to to talk with yeah. him some kind of about it and yeah. i know we could share a lot of stories and insights yeah. <laughs> right but i don't know i don't okay. know what to say about that you know, I wasn't there, you know, I wasn't there then, yeah, but I was still a fan. Yeah, I know, we all were, it's a shame, I can't remember, I should know this, and and I meant to look it up, are you in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame with Chicago? Well, I played at the induction ceremony, but no, you know, uh, the reluctance, first of all, of the the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame to induct I know. Chicago was, le- was in itself legendary. Yep. And uh, I am so wrong. But but when they finally acquiesced, which they had to because yeah. of the, I mean, between people just going, what, are you kidding me? Chicago's yeah. not inducted. Yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, they, they agreed only that the original members uh, mm. would be the inductees, right? Mm. Although here, even though Bill Champlin, for Christ's sake, had been with the band thirty years and sung on so many of their hits, and, I know. And Jason too, and and I'd been there like over twenty five years. Yeah. Uh, uh, when we were inducted, uh, so anyway, it was okay. And Keith Holland as well. So yeah. you know, it's I don't know, man. It's, it's politics. Uh, it's so weird. It's politics. politics exactly. Yeah, that's it. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. Well, uh, if you don't mind, I want to throw some of the other work you've done out there. And I'm curious what recollections you have of some of these. Okay. Okay. Sure. Okay. I love Feeway Bill. I think he's one of the most entertaining oh. people on earth. I love him. And uh-huh. you played on his <laughs> Read My Lips album. I want to hear yeah. whatever your favorite Feeway Bill story is. Because I think he's fantastic. Oh, oh man! Well, well, I have to also include Steve Lukather. 
then. And that, True. <laughs> True. And that story. Okay. That, the track I played on is sort of atypical for that album. Uh, again, that was a David Foster production. It's hard to yeah. believe. But I played on a, on a tune called Thrill of a Kill. That real kind of metal sound. Yes. Right? Heavy metal. Yeah, yeah. And uh, <laughs> anyway, um, I showed up. It was a nine o'clock call in the morning, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, 9 a.m. And at this point in time, C. Waybill and, and Steve Lukather had become really good pals and, mm. and had done, uh, had been you know, playing tennis together and all these healthy things that, mm. that uh, uh, not to tell stories, but this was the 80s, right? Yeah, and, of and course, I get it. not everybody was doing healthy things. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> and then, and, and uh, in fact, I even think they did that Baja 500, you know, they were, they were partners in the, yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, it's a 9 a.m. call, right? And mm. for me, that was not only early, I had been, I was hemorrhaging from my third eye oh. <laughs> from the night before. No, I, I, jokingly, I had been <laughs> up, you know, partying all sure. night long. Sure, And it was like, ah, it'll be fine. And, you uh, know, probably be some mellow thing. So <laughs> I show up at the, at the session, and Luke, Luke at theirs, my drum set is, my cottage company had set up my drums right in front of a stack of, Marshall amplifiers, you uh-huh. know, Luke's yeah, Marshall's. <laughs> and Steve said, okay, Chris, I want it all. I want <laughs> you give give it all to me, this track. And then he, they, he plays this song, man. Uh-huh. <laughs> that is like screaming for double bass, you know, uh-huh. uh, drums and, and all. And I, you know, I used to play double bass drums and I had a double pedal and everything. So, so, I said, okay, man, I'm going to do that. You know, I mean, it was obvious what it, what it, what it needed. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. so uh, <laughs> he was there too, and and uh, and I, you know, I got to tell him how much I admired him and his mm-hmm. work. I, mm-hmm. you know, I love Free Wrangle as well. So we started to play the uh, the tune, and and uh, and man, it's just it's rocking. I mean, mm-hmm. once I finally, you know, coming out of my stupor. Uh, I mean, with a stack of marshals in front of me and the energy that Steve Lukather has, yeah. there's no way you can stay in the stupor for very long. Right, right, <laughs> right. So, so anyway, 
Yeah, that was it. It was like uh, originally it was just Lukather and me on the, on that track wow. uh, uh, playing, and then uh, we were going to overdub a bass player. But then Luke said, "Now I'll do it." And so <laughs> I remember he, he he got a bass uh, that, and uh, and he was sitting down in the control room, you know, playing to that track, and the track is just like you know on fire. Yeah, and he gets so inspired, he, he gets. He stands up and kicks over the chair he was sitting in. <laughs> really? You know, starts throwing a rock shape. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so play old man. So uh, so that's him on bass on that as well. Okay. Okay. And uh, but the the song it opens the second side on the on that album, mm-hmm, and I, mm-hmm. I'm real proud of that, man. I really Good. am. It's so cool to know that track. Oh, uh, I love it. Yes. I like that album a lot. I like Fee. I've had him on here. No one tells stories quite like Fee Waybill. He's so entertaining and fun. I love it. Oh, Good. man, I know. <laughs> yeah, he sure is. Good. Yep. Um, huh. Now, to go completely the other end of the spectrum, I also love Anita Baker. And I don't know, you mentioned earlier playing with her. I don't know if you're on her albums or if you toured with her. In what capacity did you work with Anita? Well, here's what happened. Okay, I played with Anita Baker in 1986, right after joining mm-hmm. the Al Jarreau band. Al Jarreau's bass player at that time was Freddie Washington, mm. whom had just recorded an album with an unknown artist named Anita Baker mm-hmm. called Rapture. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. So good. <laughs> and so, so yeah. And so Warner Brothers had, had big plans for all kinds of ideas because she is so versatile. Uh, so one of the ideas was that she was going to be playing the Montreux Jazz Festival. Mm. And and so, uh, because she's also a great scat singer, mm. that that she, she could, could record a live jazz record uh, at Montreux. Uh, oh. with George Duke producing and George Duke uh, playing keyboards and, uh, you know, sort of a all-star band, you know, on different mm-hmm. tracks. You know, David Sanborn was there. And, okay. Uh, so anyway, we, we recorded a set. Actually, I, that was one of the high points of my career, I have to say. Really? I'd been asked, I'd been asked to join the Al Jarreau band, and Al Jarreau at that time was so big, mm-hmm. He played two nights sold out at the Montreux Jazz Festival in, in Montreux, Switzerland. Mm-hmm. And the two opening acts on each night, the first night was Shaka Khan. Oh, uh, wow, and, she's and great the, too. the next night was Anita, Anita Baker, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I had left Shaka Khan, uh, Shaka Khan's band, to join Al Jarreau when oh, I'd wow. been asked. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and wow. so... Chaka knew that I was going to be there, so she she didn't bring the drummer. Oh, her okay. So, so the first night I played with Shaka, opening for Al Jarreau that I then played with. So mm. <laughs> on the first night, and the next night I got to record this live album, jazz album, with Anita Baker and George Duke and this incredible band, and then uh, play with Al. After okay. that, right? Wow. On the second night. So, anyway, they, as it turns out, the Rapture album absolutely took off and had mm-hmm. hit after hit after hit. The record company then 
decided that, that they didn't really want to confuse her audience mm. or break up the momentum by by releasing a jazz album or an mm. album of, of jazz standards with mm -hmm. her, you know, being a jazz singer then. Mm -hmm. So what they did was um, the only thing that saw the light of day was on the EP, I saw a version of Moondance, right? Okay, Dan yeah. Morrison. Oh, nice. Yes. There's a marvelous night for a moonbeach Beneath the stones up above in your eyes A fantastic night for making romance Beneath the cover of October skies And all the leaves on the trees are falling I do the sound of the breeze as it blows I keep trying to place to the calling Of your house as it plays soft and low And all the noise magic Seems to whisper to me, baby, and hush And all the soft moonlight Seems to shine What? So that's on yeah. YouTube? Okay. And is that the only oh, time yeah. you ever played with Anita? Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Okay. That was it. Okay. I, yeah. She's a mystery to me, too. I've, I would love to talk to her, and I don't know where she went either, but um, anyway, she seems like a... I've always really liked her music. Now, i got to yeah. ask you about Richard Marks, and I wondered if it was the Fee connection that got you on Richard Marks, because they're buddies. You played on his debut album, right? Yes. Well, actually, uh, actually, Richard, when before he had any record deal or anything, he was was hanging around the the Loggins camp, and Larry Larson was a friend of his, uh, and I think had designs on on uh, on managing him. But he, this is well before he had a record deal. But Richard kind of had gotten to know so, so many people in the business. I mean, anyway, he actually had put a band together that included me to do his first showcase mm. um, on at a club in L.A. At, at the night of his showcase, the audience had people like Olivia Newton-John and John Travolta and Barry Manilow. Like I said, he knew everybody in the business, you know, wow. by, the, by the time he was signed. So anyway... Uh, the band was was me and and uh, Bruce Geitch, his his, mm. his longtime friend from Chicago, uh, Nathan East on mm -hmm. bass, uh, David Foster actually played keyboards on mm. <laughs> some of the stuff, yeah. Steve Wood, and then he had the great string arranger playing synthesizers, Jeremy Lubbock. So mm. it was like this incredible all star band. And anyway, so he got he got his record deal, and uh, as it turned out. I was. I, I think David thought he would probably produce him, Foster, mm -hmm. but it didn't work out that way. And and uh, uh, I actually from the band, I think I'm the only guy they ended up playing on anything. 
But it was the number one record that I play, I was asked to play on, mm. a song called Hold On to the Night. Yeah. And uh, I'm so, so proud of that. Just when I believed I couldn't ever want for more This ever-changing world Pushes me through another door I saw you My mind could not erase the beauty of your face Just for a while Won't you let me shelter you Hold on to the night Hold on to the Wish that I could give you something more That I could be yours How do we explain You know, it was Richard's concept. He said, I know this sounds weird, man, but, but uh, you know, I really hear this song without any drums, but I want you to come in and do it like a big Triss fill <laughs> after the bridge and then play from there on out. And I went, oh, I played. Okay, cool. Great. So they got this giant drum sound. And uh, yeah. And wow. uh, at first, when I, when I, when I, the first few fills I did, he kind of went, yeah, that's okay, that's, yeah. Uh -huh. I was trying to be tasteful. And then he said, no, just kind of give me more, you know. Uh -huh. so, so I went, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I start off tame and get pretty nuts. Yeah, <laughs> nice. With the triplets, yeah. Okay. <laughs> that leads me, you know, something yeah. I, whenever I like to, whenever I talk to session guys, we'll say kind of like you, one thing I am always curious about is why do or did people call Triss? Why do people call you? What is it that you, do you even know what you bring to the table that is different or better or more valuable than anyone else who they could have called at that moment? Why are they calling you? You know, that's a great question, man. And one that I've pondered <laughs> many times yeah. over and over. But but I think that, that um, I at a certain point, we all kind of have our own voices, yeah. you know, it's like how you, it's your groove, first of all, mm -hmm. you know, there, particularly before people were cutting with click tracks and all mm -hmm. of that, you know, and certainly before Pro Tools and you could move notes around and everything. It was your feel. Yeah. It was, it was the feel, you know, that you had. Right. And then your creativity, I think, too. And then uh, your taste uh, as well, or lack of said substance mm -hmm. <laughs> would come mm -hmm. into play depending on the, the material, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think it's it's like a combination of all those things. But I also you know, I I when asked before too, I think it's it's really important uh 
in any musical situation, because musicians being sensitive, you know, humans and and particularly songwriters, you know, mm-hmm. every song is like their baby to them, and mm-hmm. you know they're re- revealing a, a part of themselves. I think to be sensitive and be able to uh, to read people uh, mm. it really is important too. Yeah. You know, and being being able to understand what what it is they're they're tr- they're wanting to emote. Yeah. You know, and, and to be able to interpret it in a way that that uh, that you know helps yeah. that. And I, you're good I, at that. I think okay. Really well, I, I I hope to be. I aspire to be. Well, you and, must be because uh, you've been at this for a long time, and and uh, they people love you. So that yeah, you nailed it. Well, good. Oh, okay. Man. Well, let me ask yeah, you this. Yeah. One last question. I am curious. Uh, this is something I try. You know, I I kind of close out a lot of these interviews with this. I am curious just what your favorite memory is. When you look back, you've done so many things and played so many shows and met so many of your heroes. Is there one thing that rises to the top that's just like, you would not believe what happened to me? Is there something like that? Well, oh, God. Well, there's there's been many that yeah. I still can't, <laughs> right. can't believe it happened, and I'm kind of hard-pressed to pick one. But <laughs> I have to say that, that maybe one of the most amazing memories for me was to to play at live aid uh, um, you did who did you play course. with at live aid kenny loggins i forgot at, kenny played live aid wow yeah okay yeah we were asked to play footloose yeah at live aid only one song and oh. we had been in houston the night before and we had to to get up way early in the morning to catch a flight to Philadelphia, or you know, the, mm-hmm. uh, to the stadium uh, to get to the stadium where we could could uh, perform like, mm-hmm. uh, with the event. And it was simultaneously going on, if you remember, mm-hmm. in uh, London. Mm-hmm. In fact, Phil Collins flew over to play with, yeah. with uh, Led Zeppelin, yeah. and and uh, yeah. Uh, and he actually played both events. It was such a tight schedule that we couldn't even bring all our own equipment. Wow. So Stan Lynch, the drummer mm-hmm. of, of Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, was kind enough to let me use his drum set. Mm. And, and all I bought were my electronic uh, Simmons, you know, those mm-hmm. uh, hexagonal or octagonal yeah. or whatever they were, uh, pads, and my electronic... Uh, brain uh-huh. <laughs> to, to do the, the breakdown for Footloose uh-huh. and that's all I had that with my own but anyway they, yeah that's on YouTube too and it's pretty okay. spectacular Come on before we drag loose 
I, I, it's, it's spectacular in that, uh, as was brought out in the movie about Queen recently, uh-huh. that that audience was was including the the, the simulcast yeah. uh, around the world was 1.5 billion people. Crazy. Now that's the biggest audience I've ever played yeah. for. I have yeah. to say. Oh man. Uh, the stadium itself was 90,000, I think, or 100,000. Uh, but but uh, yeah, it's wow. 1.5 billion yeah. worldwide. So. I remember that day. I uh, I was watching MTV in the early in the day, and then I watched it on TV again later that night, and that was amazing. I had completely yeah. forgotten that Kenny was there. That's right. Okay. Yeah, we just did the one tune. Right. I think Chevy Chase introduced us. Oh, interesting. <laughs> interesting, huh? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, I uh, I should throw in one little bit here to get ready to talk to you. I had never listened to a honk album before and I listened to five summer stories and uh, oh. it's great. It's a lot of fun. And there's even a, a so one of the tracks on there is a, is your drum solo called humdrums. And so if anyone wants to find <laughs> something on YouTube, that's Tris, go listen to the five summer stories album. It's a lot of, it's great. And it's just, it's great oh, music man. from that time. You know, I loved oh, it. I'm glad. I'm glad because it's not typical of Honk. I have to say there was a oh, couple really? of songs on that soundtrack album that were typical of Honk, but but the the, the those instrumentals, so many of them, uh, where the filmmaker just mm-hmm. described to the band the mood he was shooting for, mm-hmm. uh, and we just sort of it was like Zen archery. We just kind of went, oh okay. <laughs> uh, two of us in the band surfed. And so he kind of described the surf spot and the right. the surfer if we knew who he was, and we just kind of wrote it on the spot. Wow. That's <laughs> so, great. Uh, but for the uh, later honk albums were more typical of the band. But okay. there's two songs on there that that were uh, uh, "Don't Let Your Goodbye Stand" and "Made My Statement." I think those yes. two songs are kind of more typical of honk. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Both great. Both great. Um, well, fun. Tris, I've been wanting to talk to you for years. I am so grateful that you gave me some of your time. This was a gigantic honor for me. Thank you. Oh, man, it's, the honor's mine. Thank you, John. It was really fun. I really enjoyed talking Good. to you. All right, there you have it, Tris Bowden. Such a nice guy. I mean, he's so nice, and yet he hits the drums so hard. He's so killer. And I don't know if you know this, he's a big-time surfer. You should see pictures. I mean, 
look, I'm a straight man, but I can give it up. The guy looks fantastic, and he's in almost 70. But he, it's because he surfs every day. He makes bald look good. I make it look terrible. He makes it look good. Anyway, thank you, Tris, for talking with me. You're the best. I want to close it out with a little bit more honk. Give some more love to that honk band. They were fun. Check out their stuff. It's on YouTube. Anyway, okay, as I said, next week, it's our third and final episode of this series. We are talking to Mickey Curry. Now, Mickey has been the drummer for Brian Adams for years. And before that, he played with Hall & Oates. He's played with the Colt. He's played with a ton of other people. And so that's going to be our guest next week. I think you're going to love that as well. Uh, huge thanks, as always, to Yan the Man Makevich, my right-hand man for everything. You guys know what to do. You can find us on Facebook. You can like our page. You can send us a message on there. You can find us on... Uh, you can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com. Or you can find us on Twitter at The Hustle Pod. We may have a deep dive coming out later this week. We will see. And otherwise, we will talk to you next week. Thanks, everybody. I'm waiting on you.